everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We had a system of, of punishment that we would call the hot seat. And the group, like mob, you know, comes at you and it's like, it's like hurling stones. I remember this one guy, they found a candy bar in his pocket, you know, and it's like, you would have thought he'd shot somebody the way he was treated. Welcome to the second episode of the second season of Was I in a Cult? I'm your host, Tyler Meesom. And I'm Tyler's prop master, Liz Iacuzzi. Now, if you didn't listen to the first part of this story yet... Then we admire your unconventionality. But in order to understand this episode better, we suggest starting with episode one. Where we introduce our guest, Mr. Hoyt Richards. And you will learn all about how ridiculously good-looking he is. But we will make no mention of that in this episode. I mean, we'll try not to, but it's just so damned hard. So, to recap, our fearless, devilishly handsome... Liz, you lasted five (laughs) seconds. I'll do it. So at this point, Hoyt, our supermodel, had just started modeling, but he wasn't quite super yet. He had graduated from Princeton and moved to New York and was living back with self-proclaimed socialite, Freddie. The book Aliens Among Us had come out, touting Freddie as the next philosopher that could revolutionize humanity. And the group that was now formed had just given itself a name, Eternal Values. And a cult was born. Ah, so cute. Just a little baby cult. Just a tiny baby little baby cult. You're a good little culty. Just a good little can cult. Can you say love bombing? Can you say coercion? Oh, you yes, can. Yes, you can. Of course, at this point, it was just a little baby cult, and nobody knew that it was a full-blown cult yet. People had read Aliens Among Us and were now reaching out to Freddy from all over the world. So to keep up with the incoming interest, they set up an office. We don't even have an office. The time I spent in New York was really only five years. A lot happened in those five years. Once we started to kind of get involved with the, you know, a business, that's when things got much more into how are we going to make an imprint on a bigger scale. So the good times of whether it was going clubbing or you know, those all kind of went out the window, and now it's like full-time work mode. And the job duties were numerous. They would take phone orders and sell New Age books. Or... They would record their own take on spirituality and sell those tapes. Of course, Freddie, like most co-leaders, wasn't doing much, well, any of the work. It was his job to do these life readings, and he was a terrible procrastinator and putting it off. And, you know, the book had given him this kind of celebrity status. But Hoyt was a budding supermodel. And supermodels get to travel the world. 
I traveled a lot. I mean, I was on the road 300 days a year for like 10 years rolling, you know, easily. So I was gone a lot. But when I would be home and I'd go straight to the office, I was answering letters from people who were really seeking help and supposed to give advice to, which I never felt very comfortable doing. Supermodel by day, emerging light worker by night. And all of the outside attention the group was getting led to many more followers. More people moved into the building then. More people were getting involved. We had originally two, two apartments in the building. I think we had like upwards of eight or nine at that point, of which Freddie would have called them, you know, chambers of the pyramid. We'd have our painters come and repaint the place so it's in line with the whole Eternal Values vibe. Which, if you were wondering, was in New Age colors of, quote, high vibrational harmonics. Which, if you were wondering, is shades of pink, lavender, turquoise, and chartreuse. All accented by carefully painted silvery clouds. You know, colors of the New Age, according to Freddie and my grandmother's house robes. We had up in uh, the Bronx this area called The Loft, where you could house upwards of 20 30 people. I mean, it was a, there was a guy up there called Christopher Pratt, a very specialized high-end painter. It was basically his role to take the new recruits who would come in and not really have the means to sustain an apartment in New York. They would go to be sent up to the loft and they would go work for Christopher and he would kind of train them and, and they would go and paint houses and like celebrities' homes. And then the rest of the people who were more kind of, I would say, the the frontliners, the branding people, you know, were successful. You would get them to move from where they were in the city and move into the building. And uh, and then we'd all meet for dinner every night, you know. And and, uh, when I'd be in town, I'd sometimes be responsible to cook for 30, 35 people. We had a very strict diet. We definitely, we we called it the diet. We actually ended up printing it out and, and marketing it as well. So, so kind of fruits and vegetables, meats and fish. It was actually a pretty solid diet. People were, were getting pretty strong and healthy on it. And we'd all eat together, and that's kind of the routine. Then we'd go back and work in the office. And, you know, sleep was, was not considered something that you were supposed to do. Like, you had to get your work done. Most of those involved in those early days were attractive, well-dressed, 20- and 30-something-year-olds. Fashion was important to Freddie. Specifically, gemstones. Frederick would stress the importance of the gemstone being worn next to the skin, calling them the chakra centers of the earth. Or as Freddie called them directly, the condensed light of God's own thoughts. I was going to say that. Freddie would, of course, sell gemstones to his followers and others for thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. It's been speculated that he sold over $2 million worth of gemstones over the years of the group. Which seems like an appropriate time to bring up our Was I in a Cult Gemstones? Mm, That's right. Was I in a Cult Gemstones? Operators are standing by. Wear them in your underwear only to receive the full benefit. But in addition to gemstones and jeans, the Eternal Values group did have a unifying appearance. That was in the late 70s, early 80s with the advent of all the tanning salons. So... Everyone in the group was so tan because, you know, that was kind of status quo. I mean, it's like part of our uniform. We were just, we eventually ended up buying one of those machines and using it. Like, it put it on top of one person's bed, and it just, everybody was so tan all the time. Tan, handsome, skinny and professional. The hip, 1980s, New York, New Age commune. There was architects, lawyers, other models. There was an accountant. You know, things like that. So people had had other jobs. We were all kind of living in the same building. 
So it was a little bit more communal that way, but it was understood that not everyone could give up their job. The women got treated badly in our group. I mean, there was a whole misogynistic vibe that Freddie had created. I don't know why he looked down on women. I mean, it's impossible to get inside his brain, but he was just against almost heterosexuality in, in general. There is always a hierarchy in cults. I guess I would have been cleaning toilets then. If you were a heterosexual woman, you were, you were the bottom of the food chain, and he made you feel like that. And he would actually tell them, like, your, your job is to bring in, you know, recruit people, you know, seduce them and bring them in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that was kind of the narrative that he was creating for them, which was awful. Freddie naturally took the leadership position. He was definitely presenting himself as a teacher, and he was looking for his students. He would call them the Chaldeans, the deans. In Aliens Among Us, he claimed he was eager to reach as many, quote, wholesome people as possible to help prepare them for the new age that will be dawning soon in, guess what year? Y2K, baby. That's right, the year 2000. My God, so many terrible things were supposed to happen that year. But the only thing to actually go extinct that year was the Pyranian Ibex, when a falling tree landed on the final surviving member of the species. (laughs) It's true. So sad. Poor little wild goat. In, in a cultic environment, you're targeting the people that will bring in more people. So you're looking for people that have like inherent leadership qualities, you know, have a certain level of charisma, have a, a background of success. Um, you know, that's a very appealing thing because it's all, it's like marketing. You know, if you're going to put people on the front lines out there to kind of set an image, you want them to reflect the image you think that would, you know, will bring more people in. And whilst hanging out in Milan, clad in Gucci and Versace with other fabulous people, Versace, 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 Hoyt did his share of recruiting as well. I definitely unconsciously was a recruiter, for sure. I just thought I was doing everyone a solid. A lot of models were in, you know, kind of a, a spiritual path of a different source, and we'd have uh, all sorts of conversations, and I might, you know, offer up an opportunity to say, oh, well, you should come meet, you know. I did recruit in quite a few people, and, and that's another thing that's not fun to live with. But I can say at the time, I thought I was trying to you know, do them some, some benefit. But the group would also recruit right at home. We held seminars in a church in New York City, just trying to find different ways that we could get the word out to people and, and potentially recruit in some new members. It's a warm audience, right? And they're, they're coming there because they're interested in the subject matter. And then Freddie would go on this radio show sometimes, and sometimes people would call in, and sometimes those people would get involved. We had this cable access show. Oh, my God. You have to see it to believe it. And see it, we have. Hoyt gave me a drive full of these clips, and I watched way, way, way too much of this terrible cable access show. We would come on like at 2.30 in the morning right after the Robin Bird show. And Robin Bird was a adult movie star, you know, who would in- interview other adult movie stars. And, and so you'd have all these porn stars on for an hour. And then Eternal Values would come on like, ooh, this one, yeah, this oh, new age music. How did you, ladies and gentlemen? I'm Frederick Von Mirez with another platform across America of the Eternal Values. This platform will deal, touch upon the towering intellects and geniuses who presented what became Western philosophy. Plato, Socrates, Kant, Descartes, and others. It would be mostly Frederick and John riffing about different metaphysical topics. Nothing was planned, just riffing. A universal dispensation 
the kind of which that is taking place on our planet in this day and age is bringing together a focal point where we realize that the material world as we thought existed from a subject-object point of view we realize no longer exists for actually what we're all we're ever experiencing from a material point of view all you are experiencing this moment are the vibrations of light bouncing off the atoms of your television set and on that show, Freddie would often spout off about his theory called a walk-in. We touched on walk-ins in episode one, but it definitely warrants more description. Freddie's whole take on his life was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with a walk-in. Have you heard of that concept? I don't know. Maybe. Tell me. A walk-in is if, if a person's struggling in their life, because they're looking at them from like a soul level, like a soul's in a body having a terrible time. They're contemplating suicide. In that scenario, they can, in essence, be pulled out of their body and given liberty without killing the body. A new soul will come in. They'll take on that, that person's karma. But because they're an evolved soul, they'll actually be able to not only take on that karma, but also do the work that they want to do to kind of jump past catapult past childhood and all those childbearing years and get right into action. So the idea is the person kind of has a little bit of a breakdown and they emerge like a brand new person. It clearly defines historical walk-ins. For instance, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln were all walk-ins. Mohandas K. Gandhi, Jesus of Nazareth became the Christ consciousness walked into Jesus' body when he was baptized by John the Baptist. We're all walk-ins. And you know who else was a walk-in? Let me guess, Freddie. And so the way Freddie would reference that is, oh, the old Frederick would do this, this, and this, you know, but you know, I'm V, the short for, for Von Mears, you know, and, and so he, he kind of would reference his prior self with who he really was and that he was not that prior person. He claimed he could look at the astrological chart and tell you if you were a walk-in. So this is all kind of this nomenclature that came up around the whole New Age thing. And I think it was Van Halen actually read the book Aliens Among Us, got fascinated with the walk-in idea, and wrote the song Love Walks In. Oh, yes. A music reference. And not just a music reference. A good music reference. Hearing this made me happy because I do love me some Van Halen. In fact, Eddie and Alex Van Halen grew up just down the street from where I currently live in Pasadena. And I do dig this song. If you haven't heard the song, you should. Here, I'll help you. Siri, play Love Walks In. Siri. Fuck you, Siri. <laughs> love Walks In is a ballad. It's a love song. But it's also very much a super weird song about aliens. The song is from the 1986 Van Halen album 5150. This was the first album released with Sammy Hagar as the lead singer who replaced David Lee Roth. The songs with Sammy Hagar were a bit softer than the David Lee Roth songs. They were a little more well-rounded. So the first single from 5150 was Why Can't This Be Love? Good song. The second was Dreams. And the third was Love Walks In. And as we just discovered, was inspired by an alleged alien encounter. Sammy Hagar has stated numerous times that he has been visited by aliens. In an interview with Guitar World, he says that when he was 19 or 20, a group of aliens came into his room, hooked into his head, and downloaded all of the information from his brain. 
He supposedly woke up while they were doing it, and they quickly disconnected. You know, one would think that alien life forces wouldn't need to plug in with some kind of USB cable. Right, they can travel thousands of light years, but they can't use the Bluetooth? This alien encounter inspired Hagar as, he says, quote, It sent me on a course of curiosity. I bought a telescope, and I started reading UFO books, and I just got into the whole thing. One of those books he read was Aliens Among Us, where he certainly discovered the term walk-in from Freddy. Love walks in. And then you sense a change. Nothing feels the same. All your dreams are strange. Love comes walking in. Some kind of alien. It's for the opening. Simply for the strength. Love comes walking you hear that? You heard that. Some kind of alien waits for the opening, then simply pulls a string. Love comes walking in. It's like a jingle for eternal values. Yes, but accompanied by the world's greatest guitar player. No disrespect to Jimi Hendrix. Naturally. Look, it goes on. Listen to these lyrics. Liz, did you catch that last part? Earth returns to what it was before. I sense a hint of doomsday coming. Mm-hmm. Yep. Freddie's ultimate plan in a platinum-selling album. The song itself reached number 22 on the top 100 Billboard charts. And I personally remember slow dancing to the song in 1986, as I suspect many people did. Not I, Tyler. I slow danced to Key Sweat and Usher. It's seven o'clock on the dot. I'm in my drop top cruising the street. How do you dance? How do you? You can't even slow dance to that. I got a real pretty, pretty little thing that's waiting for me. You know, I have a friend, Chad, a huge Van Halen fan, and he actually played Love Walks In at his wedding immediately after they exchanged vows. And he had no idea that this song was inspired by an egomaniacal cult leader. Sorry, Chad, we just ruined your wedding. Even though we were a very small group, we had an effect on pop culture. Kind of crazy looking back at it. Because we weren't, we were less than 100 people. I happen to know a few stats about the human body. Oh dear, I hear the mild rumblings of useless trivia coming down the tracks. For example, every time you breathe, you bring in 25 sextillion molecules of oxygen, which means that every day you will likely inhale at least one molecule from the breaths of every person that has ever lived. Is that why I'm tasting Cleopatra? I could go on. Look, guys, just because someone knows random facts about the body doesn't mean you should take their medical advice. Nor should you go down the TikTok wormhole of questionable medical advice from these so-called experts. The care you deserve should come from trusted professionals and not randos on the internet. 
or a podcast. And the best way you can find these professionals is with ZocDoc. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. Like hypertrichosis, also known as the werewolf syndrome. Man, wasn't Michael J. Fox such a dreamy werewolf, Tyler? With ZocDoc, there are no surprises. Choose from thousands of patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. Browse doctor profiles, upload and verify your insurance information. And get the care you need. Go to ZocDoc.com slash in a cult and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash in a cult. ZocDoc dot com slash in a cult. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So where is Hoyt now? He's graduated from Princeton and living in New York, where he has full-on eternal values. He was staying in Freddie's one-bedroom apartment, one of the chambers of the pyramid. He would stay in the bedroom, and then the rest of us, two people, sometimes seven people, sleeping on the floor at night. It was like an ashram. You had a a one-inch foam uh, mattress. We would roll it up and then put it in the closet, and then at night you'd roll it out, and a pillow, and a blanket, and that was it. I had about a three by five foot space in the closet that was mine, and that was it. That was the only part of the apartment that was really mine, and where I could put my clothes and things like that. The apartment was in Manhattan, near the East River on 54th Street and 1st Ave. Not a bad piece of property. But when Hoyt wasn't at home, he was off being handsome. I'm flying all over Europe. The way I'd like to frame it as an extreme is I'm staying in a five-star hotel, I fly back on the Concorde, I come back to the apartment, I unpack my bag, and I go to sleep on my mat. You know, it was kind of like I had these, these two personas. I was born John Richards Hoyt. And when I had to join the union, there was already an actor named John Hoyt. So they said, you have to come up with a new name. And in your 20-year-old mentality, I'm like, I can see Hoyt Richards in the lights. But then the, the, the mechanism that it served me in my career was I always felt a little bit like uh, Hoyt Richards was my Clark Kent. You know, I, that was the persona I took on to be seen in the world. And in that persona, Hoyt Richards stayed in the nice hotels. Hoyt Richards, you know, went on the nice flight. But that's not me. So I would play the role, and I'd try to see it as best I could from that point of view, and then I'd come back and be with my spiritual family. But Freddie's not dumb. He was never going to let Hoyt out of his grasp. And the other part of it was I was giving all the money back to the group. So I would pick up my paycheck from Ford and I would figure out how much money I needed to pay my bills. And then I'd take the rest of it out in cash. And then I'd hand it to Freddie. And then there'd be times like I'd go to Europe and I'd literally come back with like 20 or 30K in my socks. And then I'd come back and I'd just, you know, just hand that stuff over to him. 
it seemed to be the more I gave away, the more money I started to make. And that was the pattern that kind of developed. Like, the more I gave it away, the more my stars started to rise. I got him a credit card. At that point, I had like a platinum American Express card. He'd go out and spend 10, 15K a month on that fucking credit card that I'd have to pay at the end of the month and acting like a holy roller. And also, I, I love being generous. And I also realized that it bought me privileges. You know, like I kind of liked being the golden goose on some level. And the main key that he said to me over and over again, he goes, Lord H., you are just impossible, but your generosity will save you in the end. Whoa, 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 back up. Why did he call you Lord H? I think the name giving was part of building that cult personality. He'd use certain names like Lord or Lady or Duke or Duchess. He'd kind of you know, give you a sense of royalty attached to it because he was very, very effective at introducing you to someone in a very inflated version, an exaggerated version of who you were. Yeah, that, and that's a, a part of the love bombing phase, right? I mean, he was very, very quick to tell myself and others that how much he loved them. You know, so he, you know, I, I think when you grow up in a family like I did, where we didn't really throw around the love word too much, that when someone does it very flippantly, it's very effective. And like many cult leaders, Freddie was extremely charismatic and charming. He could work a room like he was Liberace. Do you think Liberace could work a room, Tyler? If a piano was in it, yes. Freddie had a kind of sense of humor that would like make you laugh sometimes, like a belly laugh. Like He was just a master entertainer. And then this sense of purpose was great. I was so enthralled with them at the time. There were definitely some great times. We had all felt like we had found our spiritual family. So you have all these people that you really respect and you really, really like. Can you just sacrifice one lifetime and give your life this time to service and to God and to helping the planet? Part of the dogma of eternal values was about true selflessness. Can you live a life that is entirely about being of service and And not not make make it it about your own hopes, dreams, and ambitions? just really handed over to a greater cause. And not everyone would say yes to that. But because of that, I really respected everyone else who had, had kind of bought in that way. And that original thing you signed up for is beautiful and noble and wonderful. And I committed myself to this group for the rest of my life. To be perfectly candid, the fact that I'm in this group and thinking I'm going to be a leader of the new age. You know, I literally got to the point where I would step on a plane and I would think to myself, I wish I could just announce to everyone here that they don't have to worry because I've got such important work I'm going to do on this lifetime. Everyone on the plane is safe. You're all safe. And that's how I used to think. I feel safe. Right now, Liz, do you feel <laughs> I, safe? I feel, I'm, I feel in a, safe. I'm in a bubble. I feel safe. That's, that's how deluded I was. But he wasn't alone. There were many others sleeping on the mat, working for the group, nights and weekends, all in the hope of returning to the star Arcturus to live as a hydrogen being. This, of course, all based on the holy words of Frederick von Mills. But like most cult leaders, he didn't really practice what he preached. We thought he was living the same way, but he had right. this kind of covert. And, and I found this all out after he died. But he would go free base cocaine for a few hours and come back. And 
Yeah, he had to take all his teeth out. He basically lost all his teeth. He had just choppers. From the drug use? The drug use. Freddie actually claimed in the book Aliens Among Us that, quote, I sleep only three or four hours a night, and I work 20 hours a day. If we eat the right food and think the right thoughts, anyone can do that. Yes, the right food, the right thoughts, and copious amounts of cocaine. And then also, um, you know, he did like five facelifts. Well, he was, his whole thing was, I can't stand looking like the old Frederick. I have to be closer to what I look like on Earth. Oh, and another thing he preached was abstinence. Well. There would be these quite questionable men that would arrive. And he would say, oh, I've met this person. On, you know, I'm trying to help them. And he would take them back into the back room. And I thought he was like doing, you know, doing the ephemeris thing and you know, help put this person on track. And then, uh, and then he'd come out and he's like, oh, Lord H. Lord H, this one's having such difficulty with his wife. And look, he's been shot twice. Look at the scars. And, you know, can we help him out? So I literally would peel off 100 bucks thinking I'm helping someone rough in their way. And in fact, he's getting a trick pulled in, in the back room. You're, you were paying off his prostitutes? Yeah, I had no idea. Freddie says in the book Aliens Among Us, quote, I teach my students that it is better not to engage in sex but rather to redirect that drive into spiritual growth. I redirect my drive into the making of this podcast, Tyler. Our listeners certainly appreciate your abstinence, Liz. You're very welcome. And boyfriends or girlfriends in the group? (laughs) Oh, hell no. The downfall of mankind was romantic love. Don't get involved with anyone romantically. That was a biggie. Originally, the group started out very kind of um, monastic. Monastic. A great word. It's an adjective relating to monks, nuns, or others living under religious vows or resembling or suggestive of monks or their way of life, especially in being solitary or celibate. Also known as the early stages of the pandemic. Everyone's in their 20s, and that really got to be problematic. I was given a a green light that I could have encounters because I was out on the road, and it kind of went along with my persona as being who I was. But the group was really shut down in that way and that eventually got to the point where he's like oh you just all fuck each other then you know and, and that was a shit show okay so you could have sex i guess fine just don't talk about it but do not catch feelings and having babies oh hell hell no and also with the philosophy that the end was coming so why would you ever bring a child into this cataclysm that's about to hit like how selfish are you yeah that's the new slogan for motherhood mothers What a bunch of selfish bitches. Oh, Liz, wait. Did you catch what Hoyt said? Did you hear that? The end is coming. We were a doomsday cult. Yes! That's right. Another doomsday cult. Doomsday, doomsday, doomsday. Another doomsday cult. Tyler, there should be a calendar with all the doomsday dates. Which seems like an appropriate time to bring up our Was I in a Cult calendar. That's right, 12 months of cult, cult, cult. Was I in a Cult calendar? Operators are standing by. We could like host costume parties on the doomsday date days and listeners can come dressed up in that cult. We'll serve snacks. And Kool-Aid. Now back to Hoyt. You know, you have to realize that we, Frederick had, had prophesied that this End Times, which he basically plagiarized from Edgar Casey, who was a, a psychic back in, I think, the 30s or 40s down in Virginia Beach, who had talked about this pole shift. 
Edgar Cayce is the 20th century's most famous psychic who made predictions while asleep. You know how I feel about psychics. Cayce claimed to absorb books by sleeping on them, and he gave over 14,000 documented readings before his death in 1945. A few were correct, but the vast majority were wrong. Law of averages. A number of these were what Casey referred to as, quote, Earth changes, the belief that the world would soon enter a series of cataclysmic events causing major alterations to human life on the planet. And one of these prophecies given in 1936 was sometime around the year... 2000. 2000, Liz. He said, quote, When there is a shifting of the poles, a new cycle begins. He claimed that many areas that are now land would again become ocean floor and that Atlantis would rise from the sea and that the California coast would slip into the ocean. Why does everybody want California in the ocean so badly? So Freddie adapted that into his own prophecy. The axis itself does not change. The magnetic poles will shift as the plates snap. In the year 1999, and all the present continents that exist as they exist in their present form today, 150 miles inland will be submerged beneath the water within six hours. And, and with that, 99.9% of the population will be annihilated. Fortunately, Freddie had predicted that a great leader would help during this time. As a matter of fact, the last president of a century will be a walk-in that will prepare the multitudes for the horrendous times ahead. And that leader would be none other than... Bill Clinton. We're going to leave that for y'all to interpret, all right? But because Freddie is in touch with the space people who are looking out for Earth, we will be transported out of here while the pole shift happens. We'll be rejuvenated and trained, and then we'll come back and repopulate. So knowing that they weren't going to be on Earth for too long, Hoyt didn't feel like he needed to plan for the future. Which meant not needing to save any money or worry about things like crow's feet or the Elevens. You guys know what I'm talking about. Those damn Elevens. You know, as I said earlier, we were super tan in our group. You know, and I'm always tan and I've got like makeup artists or other models going, dude, you know, you might be damaging your skin. I'd brush them off because in my mind, I'm like, dude, you have no idea... I'm getting picked up by the space people. I'll be in the rejuvenation chamber. None of this is going to matter. I'm going to be tan until that happens. And that's how I looked at it. I guess growing up in the era of Star Wars, I was just so excited to think that it's all real. Freddie also predicted that prior to the pole shift, there would be major storms and flooding that would remake the maps. A.K.A. global warming, Freddie. You're no sensei. He would be like, no, you do know. And this dates, and that's that's when the storms are going to start. And this is a, that was a very powerful technique to try to tell someone: Are you in or are you out? When the storms all started coming, New York was going to be underwater. So it was really about moving out of New York and setting up the compound down in North Carolina, up in the mountains. It's going to be beachfront property. And when was that supposed to happen? That was around the, the turn of the century. So we're all safe now. Mm, good. We missed that. Pole shift averted. Oof. Probably because of all the prayers we gave. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Thank, Thank you, Hoyt. Yeah, Thank you, Lord You're H. welcome. You're welcome, guys. <laughs> all are chanting. And, and. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right. So, folks, normally Liz and I, uh, we record together in a booth in Los Angeles. But right now, through the magic wonders of technology, we are actually a half a world away. I'm in Australia. Yeah. How are you going, Tyler? What the hell are you doing in Australia, Liz? I'm here because my fiance is directing a movie. That is so fantastic. Good for him. Give us a little dirt, Liz. Give us some movie star shit. What's what? Who? Who's in who's it? Who's in it? Okay. Um, well... If you had to guess, he's a major Australian celebrity. He's working with Bluey. (laughs) Bluey. It's Bluey, yep. Bluey is really cool in person. No, it's not Bluey, though. Well, whoever it is, it's wonderful. I think it's definitely something to crow about. So congratulations, Liz. Now, on the show, we talk about cults, obviously. But the lens into them is through one person's individual experience. But what makes a cult a cult? I mean, what's the difference between a workout class and a workout cult, a religion and a religious cult? Well, it all comes down to a charismatic leader. I try to tell people, like a cult leader is very uh, similar pathology to a serial killer in the sense that most serial killers were made to feel abandoned or abused at a very young age, and they experience this sense of powerlessness. These certain types will seek out situations where they feel powerful. They can put someone else in that position of powerlessness, but they're now pulling the strings to put that person in that place, and that actually feels good to them. It's almost like a fix, like like an addict. That's why they keep growing a group, because once you've got someone indoctrinated, it's not so exciting anymore. Now you have to go off and get someone else. And And that becomes the evolution of the cult leader kind of, you know, building the tribe around them. And Frederick von Meers was no different. But behind the curtain, he was just Freddy from Brooklyn. When I think back on it, he's just acting out of these wounds that he doesn't understand, that he's not dealing with. And he's acting out in a way that just feels good, but it's destructive to others. And I think that the part that was most challenging about him is he would he could be so funny and really, really just engaging and, and fun to be around. And then he could turn on a dime and just rip you apart like no one's ever done. So that was the part that you were you were so attracted to this fun part, but this lurking part in the back of this other side that could come out was terrifying. And that terrifying part sadly had to be exercised somehow. I'm also watching him punish people all the time. And and I did receive some punishment, but less than others, for sure. John, uh, he would just slap the shit out of his face, like just physically beat him. And there's another guy whose name was Paul, Swedish guy, and super well-read and articulate and smart. 
and he had become kind of Freddie's manservant, and he, he would beat the shit out of Paul sometimes, and, and all claiming he was trying to break through his ego. People always say, like, like, how would you, why would you take the abuse? But when you think you're, you're encountering someone who's godly on some level, that this is somehow for your benefit. Oh, no, it can't be abuse. They're, this person's got to be operating in my favor. And this is the stuff that, that's hard for me to live with, is, is asking that question, well, why didn't I stop it, right? And, and the answers I come up with is I was shit scared. I was afraid it would turn on me. I rationalized in some way that he was doing this for Paul's benefit or John's benefit. Those are some of the uncomfortable memories for sure. We had a system of punishment that we would call the hot seat, where you basically get isolated and put down in a chair or uh, some scenario like that, and the group, like mob, you know, comes at you, and it's like it's like hurling stones. If you do not, in essence, throw a stone, then the whole mob comes at you, and now you're in the hot seat. And if someone would be behaving out of alignment to the principles that we were supposed to be living by, you know, so... Whether, whether they were being lazy or they were being secretive or whatever it might be, boy, did they get taken down. I remember this one guy, they found a candy bar in his pocket, you know, and it's like you would have thought he'd shot somebody the way he was treated, you know. And, and, and so many uh, things were blown out of proportion. Like if you literally took clothes out of a drawer and then you didn't close the drawer completely, like left it just because just you were just rushing. I could put you in the hot seat. Because the fact that you do not have the thoroughness to do this all the way to completion, when we most need you to do this, when our lives are at stake, this is where you're going to fall short. So if you don't get it together now, you're going to end up killing all of us because you left the drawer. <laughs> so I've been on both sides, and neither one of them is fun. You would get punished if you did something self-serving? Yeah, sure. Like I, uh, Early in my modeling career, I had a job which uh, was at a hotel down in St. Lucia. And part of my payment was a free week back at that place. The day before I left, hit it off with the aerobics teacher. <laughs> or she kind of ran the gym or whatever. And so I was like, hmm, maybe I'll just go back this, you know, Christmas time and go and see her. And I had this wonderful, like a honeymoon experience, you know, going back. But when that came out later that I had done that, I, I mean, it was like I could never live it down. Never live it. It's like the world's coming in and you're down in St. Lucia having a honeymoon with some woman, you know. And so I learned pretty early on, yeah, that's not, not acceptable behavior. So no, you don't ever get to leave. Not for a fun weekend. Not at all. Well, certainly uh, don't leave. Cowards do that. You leave you're fucking just going to get crushed. You're Satan's child. So he stayed, eventually losing all contact with his former life. My family really uh, struggled with it. My mother was the first one to diagnose that something was wrong and, and actually used the word cult. There was a 12-year period where I just broke contact with all of them. And so I've got all these um, letters and cards. I kept a lot of stuff, and my parents kept a lot of stuff of those exchanges. My family always did a Christmas card to be a picture of everyone. And so, you know, at first I started to disappear, 
yeah, there's always a letter with the, with the picture saying what what all the kids are up to, and and then at a certain point it's like, oh well, our son's still doing the modeling, and we see him in pictures, and we're still praying for him, and then there's just no mention of me for another ten years. Like it's like I'm not even in the family. I have got a a birthday card. My mother says, you know, I haven't seen you, and the card basically says, you haven't seen you in 365 days. You know, and she she crosses that out, and puts 3,650 because it had been 10 years. She's like, we're still lo- we still love you, and we're praying for you. Where were these letters sent? To New York. Somebody hid them from you, or you? No, I. You know, I. It, it's one of these mysteries. Like, I don't know whether I just kept them or whether I returned them to sender. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but uh, I had no contact with them. It was February of 1990, 12 years after Hoyt first meets Freddie. And 10 years before the world was going to end. Freddie gets contacted by the journalist, Marie Brenner, who's a well-known writer with Vanity Fair and kind of, I think she's written books and exposing a lot of stuff. So she, someone from her family or friend of her family, had a, had a young boy who got involved with eternal violence. I can't remember his name. He'd gotten out through an intervention. And so Marie Bernard heard about the group. I think that's why she came on the story. And she was really adamant to make him pay, so to speak. And, and, and they lied to Freddie and basically said, oh, we're doing these stories on all the great spiritual teachers in America right now. We've heard about your work and we love the interview. At this point, Freddie was quite ill, suffering from what he said was a staph infection. But no illness could stop that man's ego. And he was like... Yes, absolutely, you know. He would have gone to the opening of an envelope. Marie Brenner spent time with Freddie and his followers. She did her research, and she started writing her takedown of eternal values. One of my friends from college was working for Vanity Fair and had given me a heads up saying, you know, well, they're doing this. I go, yeah, yeah, I've heard it's going to be great. He's like, I don't think it's going to be very good. I still need to let you know. I'm like, What? And then the woman, Marie Brenner, tried to call me once, and I refused to talk to her because I'd been given the heads up. I'm like, I'm not going to talk to her. She's going to spin this. You know, this is this is the evil outsiders. You know, the people in the Matrix. You know, trying to hurt the people who've gotten out of the Matrix. But then, so the Vanity Fair article came out. I mean, as you can imagine, that's awful. The article was called "East Side Alien," and in it, she describes her initial visit with Freddie. Quote. I was staring into the face of Frederick von Mears. We were sitting in his apartment, an elaborately decorated airy on East 54th Street. Behind him were a golden Buddha and a massive display of pink azaleas and lilies that seemed to take up an entire wall. Pulsating ionization machines cleansed the air and billowing clouds were painted on the walls. What is that? I asked. It is the beyond, he answered. This is a holy place. She goes on, quote, Near me, six of Von Mir's friends and followers stared at us, as if hypnotized throughout our interview. They all had striking similarities. They were all young, mostly in their 20s and early 30s, and quite good-looking, with taut, muscular bodies. During this lengthy article, Brenner attempted to figure out Freddie's background, to no avail. But she discovered that he was a failed model and she addressed how he wormed his way into the New York social scene. She discovered that in 1977, he had been writing checks on his godmother's account to himself after she had had a stroke and was unable to speak. Who does that, Tyler? It's actually quite crazy. It talks a lot about his grandmother and how he took advantage of her, but 
The article also spends a great deal of time discussing Freddie's gemstone business, which he marked up shoddy gems 300%. He also addressed his prophecies and his abject racism, which were tied together. You're not going to believe what Liz is going to read next. Quote, terrible storms will destroy the world. You will all be dead within 10 years. Only the elite will be saved. I am here to train the leaders of the new age. Everyone I am training for leadership will have perfect features. I believe in the master race. Jews have been evil since the beginning of time. Hitler was divinely inspired. What a motherfucking piece of shit, Tyler. Oy, none of that is good. And for Hoyt, as you can imagine, it's a total shit show. This whole thing comes out kind of exposing him. I'm mentioned in it. I tried to call my parents because it was everything, the worst version of you could imagine your kid would get involved in. But the thing that was so interesting is as we were picking up the pieces, Freddie had died. Freddie died like, I think, five days before the article hit. Freddie had said that he didn't expect to be around for the pole shift in the year 2000, and that was one prophecy that was true. His ego couldn't survive the truth. And while he was dying of this supposed staph infection, members of the group all took turns watching over him. The big push was to try to get him to, to North Carolina. We thought he would like magically heal when he got to North Carolina on some level. And I was in Reno, Nevada, working for GQ. As one does. And I get the call that that he's not going to make it through the weekend and I need to come back. And and that blindsided me because I was completely delusional in thinking that he was going to somehow survive all this. And I remember the whole flight just trying to cope with the fact that there's no way he's going to die. But then when I got there, he looked like a human skeleton. He was dying. You're basically starving to death. You know, your, your organs are shutting down. You're losing weight. Never, never fun to watch someone die like that. You know, I don't care you know, who they are or what they've done. It's just it's a horrible way to go. The whole house was filled, like 30-plus people. We were each given 15 minutes with him. And this dropper, which was, you know, had water, they said, you know, just keep him hydrated. You know, you give him the, the droppers, and I kind of said, I can't remember whatever words I said to him. And, and, and we found out later that uh, we were all feeding him morphine, unbeknownst to ourselves, to try to speed up his death. And then because we had all kind of flown in and, you know, made it down for this weekend, Fritz and David decided when he continued to hang on that during that night they just put a pillow over his head and ended it. And, uh, and that's how he died. Days later, after an autopsy, the group discovered that Freddie didn't die of a staph infection. It actually was AIDS-related. And eventually, Paul, I think he finally came forward. And then I was like, well, how did he get it? And he's like, oh, my God. He goes, don't you know I would go down and find those male hustlers on 42nd Street? And that's those guys that would be coming in. I'm like, what? So now their leader was dead. Ding dong. Without the, our fearless leader, then it was like, well, who's going to run the controls? And that's where this guy Fritz took over. But he didn't have any of the charisma and savvy. and. We usurped him, got kicked him out, and then we just put all our focus on getting everyone to North Carolina. And 
Do they make it? You'll find out next week. On our third and final episode. Not final episode, Tyler. Just the end of Hoyt's story. Where you'll hear moments like this. One of the guys actually slept in the doorway to make sure I couldn't leave the apartment. And I have a fourth floor apartment in New York. And I remember looking out the window and looking at the cars below. And I go, I might break my legs, but I think I'd live. Maybe I should just jump. Thank you, Hoyt, for sharing your incredible story with us. We can't wait to hear the ending. And thank you, listeners, for being here and being you. And with that, take us out, Mr. Mears. There are no sins in this world, only one sin. To impose your will on someone else's will against their will, for a selfish motive. Otherwise, if you're dancing on the tabletops at Studio 54, or making love to your wife, or eating in a restaurant, or worshiping in a church, a synagogue, or a temple. All you're ever experiencing, every moment, is consciousness, which is God. As we leave you tonight with these happy thoughts, God bless you all Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus, and Buddhists. Good night, with another platform from the Eternal Values. Wazain Occult is produced, written, and hosted by the slow dancer, Tyler Mason. And the booty grinder, Liz Iacuzzi. Edited and produced by the electric slider, Kristen Vermilia. And for those who want to see pictures of Hoyt's modeling days, we have some pics on our Instagram, as well as some screenshots from the Vanity Fair article. And if you're just dying to watch Freddie on the Cable Access show. Or Hoyt on the Million Dollar Man. The clips in all their glory are on our Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash occult or click the link in our show notes. Trust us. It's, it's worth, worth it. If you or anyone you know were in a cult and has a story you'd like to share on our show, please email us at info at That's info at wasianacult.com. And now that is the end of this episode. The end. I just said that. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.